You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good morning and peace be with you. And thank you, Caroline, for that long reading. Um, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Cole, and I'm one of the pastors here. And and if you're visiting with us this morning, we are just so honored uh, that you would choose to come and spend your Sunday morning among us. And I would highly encourage you to engage uh, with really any means of connection here, but but most simply, just visit the Connect table on your way out and fill out a Connect card, and we would love to get in touch with you uh, this week and help you um, in a journey to get connected, to belong in a way that is meaningful um, and, and that will speak the love and grace of God to you. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Exodus. Uh, the series is called Shaped by the Exodus. Um, but before we begin, I just want to acknowledge that that this weekend, um, really in the last 24 hours, there have been uh, two major mass shootings. Um, and and so, so some of us are probably coming in this morning with a very heavy heart. Uh, and, and then we come in and we're singing heavy songs and we have a heavy text. And it seems that, that in kind of all of the things that are going on this weekend, death and mourning and sorrow are all around us. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that and, and, and say that I, I do believe uh, that this morning, specifically in this text um, regarding the Passover, that the Lord has a word for us uh, in the midst of mourning, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of fear, um, that there is good news um, in what God has for us in the word. Uh, and that does not mean that, that we should just blindly be happy in the midst of destruction and sorrow and death. Um, these things are worthy of mourning. They're worthy of our grief. Um, but, but we can acknowledge them and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. As we've said throughout the series, the Exodus, the narrative of the Exodus is an in-depth case study in the way that God saves, historically and eternally, individually and corporately. The Exodus is our family history as God's people, and so through it, we can better understand our place in the world, even a very broken world. The writers of the New Testament, specifically the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, tell us that the Exodus is for our instruction, uh, that it it points to the, the life and work of Jesus and that we can better understand Jesus as we grow in understanding the Exodus. And what we've been saying throughout this whole series is that we are an Exodus-shaped people. That the narrative and the story of what God has accomplished in the Exodus shapes us as God's people even today. And that we have an Exodus-shaped Savior in Jesus. And that we are called to be doing Exodus-shaped work in a world which maybe today, even more than other days, seems so desperately in need of an Exodus. And so as we prepare to jump into the text and see what the Lord has for us. Let's begin just by praying. Father, I come to you this morning and we come to you collectively with with heavy hearts, asking that that in the, the destruction and in the death and in the foolishness of sin that is so evident in what's happened in El Paso and what's happened in Ohio. Lord, we ask that you would come and let your word bear upon us, that we might be a people of hope in the midst of mourning, that we might be a people set apart in a world which definitely needs a better word and a, a better um, encouragement than they're getting. Pray, Lord, that you would be a God of comfort and mercy and grace to those communities who are affected and to us. And we ask that by your spirit this morning, I ask that by your spirit this morning, that you would use my mouth to speak the words that your people need to hear in order that we might be shaped by who you are and what you've done rather than by what is going on all around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So last week we were in chapter 11 of Exodus, and, and Marshall um, unpacked this text, which was a warning of what we're reading about in chapter 12. God warned Moses and Aaron, and through them he warned Pharaoh of what was coming. That there would be a final plague. For God had brought about nine plagues already against the people of Egypt in hopes that they would repent and turn to him. And that they would let the Israelites go free from their slavery after 400 years. But finally, God is moving into the final plague. The plague of the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Every firstborn in all the land of Egypt, from the son of Pharaoh to that of the livestock in the fields to to the son of the slave girl in, in the fields working, death is coming. We know from Genesis through Revelation that the Bible teaches teaches us that the wages of sin, that what sin brings about, what disobedience to God brings about is death. And Egypt is promised by God that they will experience the full weight of God's righteous judgment for their idolatry, for their harsh treatment of the people of Israel for 400 years of enslaving them, for their hardness of heart, even as God has revealed his power to them over and over and over in the first nine plagues. And in verse 7 of chapter 11 last week, we kind of keyed in and saw that the text said that, that even though this death was coming to the firstborn in all of Israel, I mean in all of Egypt, that God was going to make a distinction. Or that he already had made a distinction between his people Israel and the people of Egypt. So while death was coming to the firstborn of every family, God promised that he would spare the families of Israel. Now, the Israelites were no less sinful than the Egyptians, but God had promised them generations before that he would be faithful to them. He promised them that he would lead them into Egypt and that he would lead them out of Egypt. He promised them that he would make them a great nation. And so now he is saying that he's made a distinction between Israel and Egypt in order that he might glorify himself by revealing the fullness of his mercy and his love and his faithfulness to the people Israel who he had made promises to. And so today in Exodus chapter 12, we find ourselves looking at what is probably the most significant text in the entire Old Testament regarding the way in which God saves his people. So if last week God promised that he was going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt, this week we see how he is going to make that distinction. But before we dive into all that we can learn from the text, I think that it would be appropriate to place ourselves in Egypt along with the people of Israel which today might not feel as hard as it would on other days. In Egypt, the Israelites knew that death was coming. They knew that God had promised that his judgment is finally coming in full. Just imagine knowing that tomorrow at midnight, that the angel of death is going to pass through the whole land and that nobody in Egypt will be unaffected in the morning. God has promised that the firstborn of every generation, every family, every species will fall. Pharaoh's firstborn and the slave's firstborn. The cattle's firstborn. In the morning, there will be bodies lying lifeless in the homes and fields and shacks and palaces in Egypt. This is a somber and grave, and terrifying situation. This is a heavy moment in the history of God's revelation. Fear and doubt and anxiety and sadness are surely overtaking the people of Israel, even as God is giving them the promise that he's going to make a distinction between them and the people of Egypt. 
And in chapter 12, God tells us how he is going to make that distinction between Israel and Egypt clear. We'll read again the first 13 verses of chapter 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. That, that already is significant. God is saying that your history is starting over today. That, that you are a new people because of what I am about to accomplish. That this will for, from now on be the beginning of your history. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs together at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn, and in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Death is coming, but God has promised to spare his people. And this is how he's chosen to do so. And so remember, we've been saying that the Exodus is a case study on God's salvation. And so we can't just read this text and write it off as a, a one-time weird thing that happened once a long, long time ago. No, the Passover is simply the way that God saves and I think there are three primary aspects of God's salvation that we can take from the Passover. The first is this. The, the salvation of God is undeserved. We mentioned this last week, um, but I believe it's worth mentioning again that, that God is not giving Israel salvation because they were better than the Egyptians. The scriptures are clear that the Israelites were sinful, disobedient, and even idol-worshipping people, even in their time as slaves in Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They had doubts and fears. They grumbled. They hated God for the slavery they were experiencing. And so if the Exodus is more than just an event, but a true case study in how God saves, we must recognize that, that nobody, not only the Israelites on the night of the Passover, but those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, none of us are saved because we have any amount of moral superiority over anybody else. We've done nothing to deserve this salvation. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, on him being the Passover lamb. Psalm 143 verse 2 says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So God simply chose to be merciful to Israel, not because they weren't sinful, but because he had promised to be merciful to them. 
because he desired to be glorified through doing so. This is a supreme act of God's mercy to look upon a sacrificial lamb, to look upon blood on a doorpost, for us to look upon the suffering Lord Jesus as sufficient as a substitute on our behalf. No less deserving of death were the Israelites. Or are we, the church, than Egyptians or pagans or anyone else? But God has provided an unblemished substitute for those who are full of blemishes. What grace, what wondrous love is this? The second thing that I think we can learn about the nature of God's salvation through the Passover is that the salvation of God is very specific in nature. Regardless of what we might want to believe or what the postmodern world around us tells us, God has revealed himself clearly and specifically. The Israelites were not left to their own devices or own wisdom to try to figure out what might save them from death on the night that God came through to judge. For if God promised to set his people apart but gave them no means to be distinguished, that would have been cruel. Nor did God tell the Israelites to do whatever seemed best in their own eyes in order to try to please them, to try to please him in hopes that on that night when he passed through that he would find whatever they had chosen to do to be enough. That would have been totally out of character for the God who created the heavens and the earth, including all of the detailed intricacies within. God's salvation is explicit. The way for the people of Israel and the way for us to be saved is clearly revealed, and there is only one way. I mean, if we read this text, it says, take this animal on this day, prepare it in this way, eat it wearing these sorts of clothes with these side dishes at this time of the day, mix the blood with this specific herb, paint it on this specific part of your house. Eat this specific kind of bread with it. The Passover teaches us about the perfection and intricate design of God. The Passover meal and the Passover lamb, however, were never meant to be the final revelation of God's salvation. But they do speak to the final revelation of God's salvation. The lamb on the night of the Passover was merely a placeholder. A case study on salvation. But it was a placeholder for Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 calls Jesus Christ our Passover lamb. The things that happened on that night in Egypt were all in anticipation for what would fully be accomplished in our Lord Jesus Christ. But even though they were placeholders for future things, the things in Exodus 12 are specific. But they're, the things of Jesus are no less specific. The things of Jesus are no less specific. The salvation which comes through him is explicit and clearly revealed. It is only by and through the specific and sufficient glorious work of Jesus that we are saved. Acts chapter 4 says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our God is set apart from all other gods. And his people are being set apart through the specific means that he has provided in his son. And that is good news. That's good news on a day like today when we're left to mourn and weep and feel confused about death and destruction all around us because we can tell our mourning neighbors that they don't have to just try to find something that will give them hope, but we have the final words of hope in Jesus Christ. God has not left it up to a guessing game. 
He's not left it up to our ability to perform in any certain way. He has given specific instructions to his people about what to do in order to be saved. The third thing that we can see about God's salvation in the Passover is this, that God provides the fullness of the means. Meaning that God's salvation is not dependent upon our merit. See, in specifically revealing to the people of Israel all that they had to do on that night, everything that they needed to do in order for the angel of death to pass by their house, God is is choosing not to leave anything up to mystery. He has clearly told them what they are to do, and it is simple. And it can, be hard, it can be easy to miss how simple it is in light of a text with so many instructions. But when it comes to what will be the reason that the angel of death passes by the houses of the people of Israel, there is one simple answer. It doesn't depend on what they're wearing when they eat the meal. It doesn't depend on exactly which bitter herbs they ate with the meal or whether or not they were holding their staff when they were eating the meal. It depends on this. Do you have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost? God doesn't tell Israel that on the night that he brings death to sweep through Egypt, that those who have been the most obedient will be spared. He doesn't say that on the night that those who have no doubts in his promises will be spared. He doesn't say that those who have celebrated the meal exactly as he told them to will be spared. He doesn't say that those who have never worshipped idols will be spared. He doesn't say that those who are the strongest or the wisest or the richest or the best leaders or have been the most supportive to Moses and Aaron will be spared. He doesn't say that he's going to come through at midnight and enter into everyone's home to examine them closely. No, he has said this. He will pass through Egypt and every house that has the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and lintels, he will pass by. No merit is needed in order for the people of Israel to receive mercy. They simply need Innocent and pure blood on their doorpost. It doesn't matter how restless and fearful and anxious they are behind the closed door of their homes. For the Lord is going to pass by and see the blood of the lamb and choose to have mercy. It doesn't matter if they're doubting that the blood of the lamb will be enough. Don't you think that that night in Egypt there were a lot of nervous mothers and fathers? Knowing that even though they had the blood on their doorpost, that that they were terrified that in the middle of the night they would find a son dead. Of course there were. But God did not pass by the houses of those who had the most confidence in his promises. He didn't pass by the houses of those who were without doubt or who were without sorrow. He passed by the houses of all who put their hope in the blood of the Lamb. This is the way that God saves church. We are not given mercy because of our abilities or merits. We're not given mercy because of the amount that we suffer or the amount that we have self-control or resolve or a lack of doubt. We are saved when we put our hope in the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist introduces in the first chapter of the Gospel of John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes them away. So that when we have put our hope in the blood of Jesus, the Lord does not see us full of imperfection and fear and doubt and sin, but he sees us as those who have trusted in the Lamb who takes away all of those things. So the Passover Lamb, on the night that God passed through Egypt, protected the people of Israel from God's judgment. 
but Jesus provides protection not only for the people of Israel or for people in a specific place at a specific time, but as John says so poignantly, for the world. Jesus provides protection for the world. For any who would paint their doorpost with his blood, God will pass them by in judgment. God does not look upon you with mercy depending upon anything you do. In the, in the Passover, in the way that salvation is presented in the Passover, we can find deep hope for those of us who doubt our salvation. For those of us who wrestle with sin over and over such that we doubt that God has ever truly changed us, the question is simple. Have you put your hope in the blood of Jesus? Not do you sometimes have doubts about that. Not do you sometimes turn back to your former sins. Not do you sometimes have fear even though God tells you that his love casts out fear. It's simple. Do you put your hope in the blood of Jesus? Because for all who do, his blood will be your plea. His blood will be your plea against the wages of your sin, which is death. For all those who apply the blood of Jesus to their doorpost, God will show mercy. The blood of Jesus is the innocent blood of a perfect man without blemish, far better than a lamb without blemish. A heavenly man, a God-man who has given his blood to plead our mercy forever. And so, so if this is the nature of God's salvation, that it's specific, that it's undeserved, that it's unearned, what did the Passover actually accomplish? What was actually accomplished on that night or through that ceremony or through the meal? Because we know that the people of Israel were not spared from death simply because there was blood of a lamb on their doorpost. They were saved because in Exodus chapter 11 verse 7, God said he made a distinction. They were saved because God chose to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. They were spared because they were God's covenant people. They were saved because God had mercy, because God found it good to provide a substitute for them in death and judgment. So the Passover blood was not simply what saved the people of Israel. It was God, but what the Passover did was serve as a sign to God. That's what he said. He said the blood will be a sign. It was a sign to God to remind God on that night when he passed through that God had chosen them. The blood on the doorpost was not magical, but it pled to God on behalf of the people inside the homes. It pled to God to remember that he made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. The Passover blood is a sign of God having chosen to spare his people from the death that they deserve. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so is the blood of Christ for us. Through Christ's death, an adequate sacrifice was made in our place. But the blood of Christ, which is present every Sunday at the table, pleads to God to remember that he has set us apart. That he has chosen to have mercy on us if we put our hope in him. So the Passover was a sign of salvation from death, but the Passover was also a purifying event. It wasn't just that God chose to have mercy on the sins of the people, but it's that he also chose to purify the people. Verse 22 says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with blood that is in the basin. And that is significant because hyssop, is an herb that is used for purification ritual all throughout the, the Old Covenant, all in the, ver the book of Leviticus, Psalm 51, David is repenting for adultery, and he says this to God. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. 
So not only on that night did God pass over the sins of the people through sacrificial blood, but the blood was made pure with hyssop as a way of saying that God was not only choosing to forgive and save his people, but that he was also going to purify them and set them apart. And this is all the more true in light of what Jesus has accomplished, our our true Passover lamb. Hebrews 9 verse 14 says this about the work of Jesus. Responding to the sacrificial system of sacrificing animals of the people of Israel, the author of Hebrews says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Church, if you have put your hope in Jesus for salvation, you are not only forgiven of your sins, but God has chosen to purify you through the work of Jesus that you might be a different kind of people, one who no longer works in dead works, no, no longer puts their hope in trivial things, no longer works sin and destruction in the world, but works to serve the living God. The Passover event is not a one-time protection from death or judgment. It's an event that sets the people of God apart in order that they might serve Him as a totally distinct people. Being a Passover or Exodus-shaped people as the church means being a distinct people. God has chosen to make a distinction between his people and those who have not yet put their hope in him in order that we might serve him and live lives that look different and have a hope that looks different in the midst of suffering, that have confidence in the midst of death and destruction. In order that God's glory and his grace might be proclaimed to those who have not yet painted their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb. And in all of this, God receives glory. Marshall said this last week. He said, God set apart Israel according to his own good pleasure in order that his glory might be displayed. Verse 27 of chapter 12 says, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Verse 12, God says, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Hebrews 13, speaking of Jesus being our Passover lamb, says this, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good work that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, God would have been just to roll through Egypt that night and punish everyone including the people of Israel, but he finds pleasure and receives glory and praise as he shows mercy in providing for his people a way to safety and purity and security, even in the midst of death, through the innocent bloodshed of of the suffering son that he gave that we might have hope. See, in the Passover event, death and turmoil and judgment come into the land of Egypt, primarily as the firstborn son of Egypt's leader, Pharaoh, is killed. Through the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son comes hopelessness and anguish and anxiety and death and turmoil. But in the death of God's firstborn son, life and joy, and peace, and justice reign in all the earth to the praise of his glorious name. So what does this mean for us? Who are we to be if we're to be an Exodus-shaped people? And that's what we've said throughout the whole series, that we are to be an Exodus-shaped people. And at at the very center of the Exodus narrative is this Passover event. The Passover is a sign and means of salvation for God's people. 
So we're not only broadly an Exodus-shaped people, but we're specifically a Passover-shaped people. We, like the people of Israel, are saved undeservingly through the specific means of the blood of Jesus and a salvation that is sure and complete and provided for us totally by God. Like the people of Israel on the night of the final plague, many of us come this morning with doubts and fears and insecurities, with sorrow and anguish and anxiety. We see the circumstances of a world marred by sin and brokenness. Death is all around us. And even though we have these doubts and fears, even though that we struggle with sin over and over, even though we mourn in, in the sight of death and destruction, we can have confidence in that God has promised that the blood of his son is enough for us. For those of us in the room this morning who struggle with trusting that God finds hope for us, that he has provided mercy for us, that he finds pleasure in us. Let the blood of his son speak to you the promises that his salvation is sure and that it is not about your fear or your anxiety or even your disobedience inside the door of your home. It's about the fact that you have hoped in the blood of Jesus that God might pass you over. We can have assurance in the Passover. We can also have hope in the midst of mourning in the Passover. For the people of Israel knew that all around them in Egypt, people were dying, livestock was dying, families were being shattered, mourning and death and fear and sorrow were all about them. But they knew that even though these are the circumstances of a sinful world, these are the circumstances that come when people walk apart from God's promises, that he has promised better for them. That he has chosen to spare them, even though they deserved exactly what the Egyptians were getting, that he has chosen to make them into a great nation. Church, we will be saved if we've put our hope in God and trust in the means that he's provided for us. If we look upon Jesus Christ as the sufficient, blameless Passover lamb, his blood as our protection from death and judgment, granting us forgiveness for sins, even those sins which are particularly heinous or seem to repeat themselves over and over and over again. But the blood is also purifying, making us people set apart for God's glory. And like the people of Israel, we should keep the Passover as a memorial forever. Verse 14 of chapter 12 says this, This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord and throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Later on in verses 26 through 28, the Lord will even tell the people that they will tell their sons and daughters generation after generation when they are in the land of promise about what God accomplished that night. But he says, you shall keep this as a memorial forever. And so if we're an Exodus-shaped people, if we've been grafted into this family history, are we disobedient in that every year we do not celebrate and hold the Passover feast? The answer is emphatically no. For we observe the Passover weekly in the Lord's Supper. For at the table, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he shared the Passover meal with his disciples. And when he did it, he broke the ritual script. The unleavened bread, according to Jesus, was no more described the bread of the affliction of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. But Jesus said that the bread was now his body which is broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins. When he picked up the cup, the wine was no longer representing the re redemption of the people from slavery in Egypt, but it was said by Jesus to be his very blood of a new covenant, representing redemption from slavery to sin and death for all who would put their hope in him. 
blood of a new covenant, speaking of God's continual faithfulness and promise to apply grace to his people through the blood of Jesus. And Jesus also said that this new meal, this new iteration of the Passover was to be a memorial. And when we think of a meal being one of memorial, we primarily are probably prone to think of that in terms of, of the meal being used for us in order that we might remember what God has done. We might think that the Lord's Supper is a meal of memorial in that when we come to the table, we are primarily to be remembering what God has done in saving us through His Son. And that is certainly part of it. But memorial sacrifice in the Bible is much more about reminding God of what He has promised than reminding the covenant community of what God has done. And so when we come to the table of the Lord, it is not primarily about us reminding ourselves of what God has done for us, though it is doing that, but it's about coming to the table and looking upon the body and blood of Jesus and reminding God that He has promised to see those as sufficient means to replace us in judgment. We are reminding God that He has said that through His Son we will be saved, that He will be graceful, gracious to us forever. The meal being one of memorial is one of us week by week pleading to God to remember His covenant. To be faithful to us, to nourish us, to sustain us, to transform us and purify us through the blood of Jesus, but also to save us. We cling to the body and blood of Jesus as our only hope and we raise it up and then we consume it as an act of reminding God of all the things he has promised to do. We're pleading with God for forgiveness as well as demanding that God be graceful to us simply because in the table we have the signs of his promises. And this is particularly comforting to me. Over the last two years, my family has kind of constantly been bombarded with reasons to grieve and mourn or fear or be anxious. I've had doubts in the last two years. I have had doubts in the last two years. I've strayed after things other than God to give me comfort in the midst of this. Even this very week, I'm terrified of the circumstances that surround me. Like an Israelite on the night when the angel of death was moving through the land of Egypt. But what a grace it is for me. What a reason to hope it is for me to know that even when I doubt God's promises, even when it seems that all around me is death and destruction and the effects of sin, that I can come to the table and plead with God to remember that He has promised to lead me out of slavery and into a land of promise where there will be no more weeping and no more tears and no more anxiety and no more sin and no more death and no more mass shootings and no more disunity in my family and no more suffering and no more miscarriage. pleading with God to keep his promises that he would not tarry in showing me mercy. And in the meal, I'm humbled. I'm humbled that God would choose to look upon his son in such a way that he finds pleasure in me. I'm encouraged to know that God has throughout all of history, made promises to his people. And even though Egypt was toiling in slavery for 400 years, God's promise came to pass. And I can know that that will also be true for me. I'm sustained in the meal, not only physically as I consume bread and wine, but spiritually as I consume the body and the blood of my righteous and beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm transformed in the meal as I consume the purifying blood of Jesus, that every week I might be just a little bit more like him and a little bit less like an Egyptian. For those of you in the room who are Christians, I, 
I plead with you to find hope and comfort and sustaining power in the meal as it represents the work of Jesus on your behalf. But for those of you who have not yet placed your faith in Christ, I plead with you this morning that you would. That you would hide yourself in the Passover lamb and be saved from death and purified for good works. As we've said week after week, please do not harden your heart like Pharaoh to the revelation of God in your midst. For right now, we are living in the days preceding the final plague. The plague of the firstborn son is a placeholder for a day of judgment that is coming. When God will bring about death for the wages of sin. This will either come on the day that you breathe your last breath or when Christ returns in glory. And I pray that you will not be like the Egyptians, swallowed up in the sea or cast down in death. I pray rather that you would realize that God has provided for you an undeserved salvation in his son Jesus. I, I plead with you this morning that you would see that God has provided a specific salvation in his son Jesus. That there is no other name or means or activity or ritual by which you can be saved. But simply that God has provided for you in his son a sufficient sacrifice. Not only that you would be forgiven of sin, but that you would be purified and set apart as holy and lovely and beloved. And one who has joy in the midst of mourning. I pray this morning that you would realize that God has provided for you an unearned salvation. That you don't need to come to this table this morning having it all figured out or being free from addiction or struggles with sin or depression or anxiety or physical illness or doubt of any kind. But like the people of Israel, that you would simply come and plead that the blood of Jesus would be enough for you. That what Jesus has done for you would speak a better word than anything that you could choose to speak or that the world around you would speak. You don't need to understand all of God's mysteries or have your moral I's dotted or T's crossed. You don't need to do anything but trust in Christ's blood to plead words of life for you. And so would you this morning both those of you who have for decades maybe placed your hope in Jesus and for those of you this morning who never have, would you come to the table this morning clinging to the blood of Jesus painted upon the cross as your hope on that final day and every day until then? There's a beautiful thing in that Jesus tells, um, he tells us, I am the door. He is the door. On the night of the Passover, all the people of Israel hid behind a door painted with blood. Jesus says, I am the door. Would you enter through me and would my blood which covers it be enough for you? He's provided all. He has mercy for all who would come to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would convict us this morning of our our attempts to please you our attempts to provide a means for ourselves for salvation, whether it's through worldly success or good works or a positive attitude or, or whatever it is. And would you convict us that none of those things will satisfy you, but that you are completely satisfied in those of us who put our hope in your son? And would you, by your spirit, convict us such that all of us this morning in this room would find great pleasure and hope and joy in trusting in the salvation that you've freely provided for us. 
Would we come to the table every week as a memorial reminding you that you have promised to us to be faithful. You've promised to forgive us. You've promised to, to sustain us. And you've promised to change us. And so, Lord, we remind you this morning that you've promised those things. And we ask that you would keep your promises as you always have. Pray this morning by your spirit that you would reveal yourself in power to those who have not yet put their hope in you, such that they would turn to you in humble repentance and find hope in the means that you've provided in your son. That they would enter through your son who is the door and trust in the blood, which is his blood, that pleads mercy for them. We ask all of these things as a people longing for your coming, longing for a day in which we no longer experience the pains of death and sin and sorrow and destruction, but knowing that you have promised that you will keep that, that you will make it all things new, that just like for the people of Israel, that as we put our hope in you, it is the beginning of months for us that you have made us a new people in a new creation and that one day you will fully renew that creation, that we will dwell in the land that you have promised for us with all things and we will feast on that day. And every day in your kingdom, in that promised land you have for us, Lord, that we will feast and remind one another of all of your mighty acts and your gracious deeds and your powerful love. And so this morning, as we come to the table, would you make us full of hope in those promises? And would we come, whether fearful or doubting, whether sinful or not, whether ashamed or confident, would you allow us to all come and put all of our hope in your Son? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My name is Reed. I'm a pastor here. Um, and as Cole said at the very beginning, some of you are, are coming in uh, a little more raw, a little more angry, maybe a little more um, sorrowful. And I want to encourage you that those feelings are right because white supremacy is satanic, meaning it, it is evil. It is of Satan. Domestic terrorism is satanic. It is evil. It is of Satan. And so to feel angry about the events of this weekend or to feel sorrow over them is a correct response, but we don't lose hope. We don't have despair. And so if you, if you want to pray with somebody, I'll be up at the front. There'll be some other leaders I can call up at the front um, during communion and during uh, the last song. So I want to encourage you to press into that, to pray um, to a God who hears.